developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. Hi everyone, Ben here. We had an interview planned for this week's episode, but that's had to be pushed back a week, so instead we have something a bit different. Early this year, I was invited to present a lecture as part of Rising Minds, a lecture series that hosts speakers from London, New York, Toronto, and Sydney to examine topics in technology, business, and culture. I was asked to speak about the future of sex and sexuality, and I gave a lecture focusing on respectability politics in the context of Australia's recent marriage equality postal survey. Rising Minds releases their talks as podcasts, and they have generously allowed us to share the episode featuring my talk with Queers listeners on our podcast feed. They host some fascinating people, so you should absolutely subscribe to their feed if you're not able to get to a talk in person. You can find more of their lectures on their website, www.risi.ng, and we'll be back with a new episode of Queers in a week's time. Hi, I'm Drew Smith, and this is Rising Minds, a lecture series and podcast through which we explore the collision of technology, business, and culture, because it's here where the future is formed. Sydney's Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras carries a little more significance this year. The 2018 parade marks 40 years since the 78ers took the fight for gay rights to the streets of Sydney. It also marks the first parade since the passing of marriage equality in Australia. Speaking for our Future of Sex and Sexuality event, author, podcaster and journalist Benjamin Riley surveys the post-marriage equality landscape and critiques the role of respectability politics now that, in the eyes of many, respectability has been gained. Benjamin appeared at Rising Mind Sydney in March 2018 and was generously hosted by the Golden Age Cinema and Bar. Uh, thanks so much, Drew, and thank you to everyone at Rising Minds for having me. It's uh, it's really great to be here. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about myself. My name is Benjamin Riley. Um, I'm a writer and a journalist and podcaster. I have a podcast called Queers uh, that I do with the very talented writer Simon Copland. Um, so the talk is going to be mostly an introduction to the idea of respectability politics and how that plays into and I think shapes the current queer moment. Uh, in Australia, uh, and we'll get to that more directly a little bit later, but I wanted to, st- to start out by talking a bit about uh, the queer press in Australia. Uh, and I do that because I got my start, uh, as a lot of queer journalists in Australia have in queer media. Um, I think one of the, the saddest things about queer publications dying in this country is that we, we're losing this incubator for young queer journalists that's been around for, uh, for many years. Uh, it's how a lot of people got their start. Um, so I worked 
at the Star Observer, Australia's national LGBTIQ newspaper for about five years. Um, and when I say LGBTIQ, it's probably as good a place as any to talk a little bit about terminology, because that's always something that um, trips a lot of people up. Uh, if you're not aware, it stands usually for lesbian, gay, bisexual, uh, transgender, intersex, and queer. But um, I've gotten into a bit of a habit of using the terms LGBTIQ and queer interchangeably, largely because I am lazy. Um, I could spend a whole talk dissecting the politics of those terms and the differences between them. But um, just for the purposes of today, when I say queer, when I say LGBTIQ, I'm basically talking about the same thing, um, which is communities in Australia structured um, structured around diverse or non-normative expressions of sex, sexuality, and gender. So back to um, the Star Observer, the great thing about starting out in a small publication like that is that uh, you get to do everything. Um, you get to cover everything, and uh, while that's true, and I did, I eventually started to specialise in uh, first HIV, which is uh, an area of reporting that still really interests me. And uh, politics, I became the, the publication's chief political correspondent while I was there. Um, now, when I say that I was reporting on politics, what I really mean uh, in Australia over the last 10 years in a queer publication is that I was writing about marriage, um, which will probably surprise no one. Uh, now, obviously, it's done now. We have marriage equality. It passed last year, which is great. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm very curious about how we'll reflect on, on the fight for marriage equality in Australia in 10 years, in 20 years, in 50 years' time. But something that I hope we remember is that it really dragged on. Um, for anyone who was involved in the thing, the period from the change of the Marriage Act to exclude same-sex couples in 2004 to last year when the legislation was changed was a really long 13 years um, every week at the Star Observer, we felt forced to cover every minute development in the unending saga from every doomed member's bill in Parliament to every time the Australian Christian lobby said that marriage equality would mean the end of civilization as we know it, which, as we can see now, clearly has come to pass. <laughs> we, um, we used to joke in the office about how we just wanted the law to change so we wouldn't have to keep writing about it anymore. And... Uh, God, I still feel that now. I'm so glad I don't have to do that anymore. Um, but we kept doing it because audiences loved it. They ate it up. And, uh, you know, it's clearly an issue that was and continues to be very, very important to uh, a majority of LGBTIQ Australians. Um, but after years of writing variations on the same story over and over again, understandably fatigue starts to set in. So part of that's obviously about just, you know, writing and communities talking about this over and over again. But I think also that came from a, a, a tonal shift over the course of those, those uh, 10 or so years um, around the way that the issue was talked about in queer communities. So early on when we were talking about marriage, there was, I guess, a, a sort of, for lack of a better term, a kind of positive energy in queer communities. People were angry about the issue, but we were energised and we were excited about being able to fight for, for change. But I think... Uh, as the years dragged on and fatigue around the issue started to set in, as I said, what came with that was, uh, was fear. So people started to ask questions like, how long would this keep going? You know, even six months ago, it seemed like there was no end in sight. How bad would it get before anything changed? What would be the outcome of something like a plebiscite? Uh, and what if it didn't change at all? People started questioning the inevitability of that change. Um, now, as tends to happen when people get scared, 
um, we started to, to turn on each other. I'm just going to grab some water. Um, so as soon as queers started to wonder whether or not marriage equality would happen at all, our community started uh, policing behaviour within those communities that was seen as a threat to achieving what was, for a lot of people, our ultimate political goal. Um, so to give you an example, after I left the Star Observer, I went to work at the Victorian AIDS Council, which is a HIV and sexual health organisation in, in, in Melbourne, um, which is where I'm from. I've, uh, I've only been in Sydney about a year, so Melbourne's kind of my home. And even when I moved to a different organisation, I couldn't escape those same conversations about marriage. Um, I was doing PR and kind of media management for them, and one of the more fun stories that I got to promote while I was there was around a survey um, that the AIDS Council and a bunch of other HIV and sexual health organisations do every year called the Gay Community Periodic Survey. Now, if any of you have been to, uh, to Mardi Gras Fair Day, you might have done one of these surveys. It's basically a long list of questions about, um, about sex, about relationships, about drug use, about sexual health, um, and it has been running for a while, so it captures quite uh, um, an interesting set of data over a long period of time about the sexual behaviours of, of men who have sex with men in Australia. Now, the year that I was uh, doing this media, one of the more interesting things that came out, had come out of the survey that year was that 32% um, of the men who took the survey were in open relationships. Um, what was even more interesting was that that was the most common relationship status of people who'd taken the survey, so it was more common than uh, um, guys who were having sex uh, with just casual partners, more common than guys who weren't having any sex, and, and more common even than monogamous relationships. So having this piece of data and knowing that I would be trying to kind of um, get this out there into the community, I had two thoughts. Um, the more kind of community-minded queer in me said, you know, great, this is a fantastic opportunity to um, destigmatize open relationships, to, to get the idea that lots of different kinds of relationships are valid out there. Uh, and then the journalist in me just said, great, this will be an easy sell because everyone loves to read about sex. <laughs> um, so when we put the, uh, the media release out and encouraged journalists to write about it, we knew that it might cause a bit of a fuss, but what we didn't expect is that the most vocal outrage would come from gay men themselves, and specifically from marriage equality advocates. So when the media release um, went out and the story started getting a bit of traction, uh, and it ended up getting kind of global traction, which was kind of cool, across social media, um, some of the most high-profile voices in the marriage equality debate at the time um, condemned this uh, the, the survey results condemned that we would put it out there, attacked the validity of the survey, and basically said that it wasn't representative of the real gay community. Um, and they were saying this, uh, and they said that this is what they were doing, because uh, they were worried we were undermining the political goals of the marriage equality movement by equating gay men with promiscuity. So, in other words, why the hell would the government let us get married if they think we're all sluts? Um, so I'm going to talk more directly about respectability politics now, and I should probably come clean about a few things as well. I have a, um, I'm talking a lot about marriage equality, and I have a kind of a complex relationship to the issue. Um, I'm not a big fan of marriage. It's not an issue that's ever been kind of high on my list of priorities um, for, for queers or, or generally. Uh, I think part of that frustration is about airtime. It's about 
the fact that over the past decade or so of fighting for this issue, it's been really hard to get interest in anything else in terms of LGBTIQ issues. Um, it's hard to pay, uh, it's hard to get the mainstream media to pay attention to anything outside of marriage equality. Uh, and there are plenty of other things I think that are, that are as or, or more important that, that we could uh, be talking about, uh, access to healthcare, um, uh, violence prevention, poverty, um, and in, in some cases even kind of basic bodily autonomy for, for queer people in Australia. Um, I hope now that the legislation has passed, we can find some space to talk about these things uh, and that the, the incredible mobilization of the community we saw last year won't just kind of disappear and that we can keep that up a bit. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see, I guess. Um, so that's kind of part of my frustration. The other part of it is, is kind of with marriage as an institution itself. I mean, I'm not going to kind of go into great detail about critiques of the institution of marriage because they're very old and um, people have been saying these sorts of things for a, for a long time, essentially that it's kind of patriarchal, uh, it's old-fashioned, it's about subjecting relationships to explicit regulation by the state, all of those kind of, you know, um, those same sorts of things. But I guess the, the, the important point um, is not so much about those things, it's that... Um, the I, I get frustrated that queer the queer political movements that we've seen really shaped by marriage equality over the last decade um, in Australia and elsewhere have been dominated by respectability politics. So um, I'll give just a bit of a kind of succinct definition of respectability politics now. So uh, it's here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's basically the idea that for people in marginalized groups, the best way to achieve acceptance is to show 
that our behaviors and our values are non-threatening and entirely compatible with the behaviors and values of mainstream society. So just to kind of repeat that very briefly because it's kind of the core idea of this talk, uh, respectability politics is the idea that for people in marginalized groups, the best way to achieve acceptance is to show that our behaviors and values are non-threatening and entirely compatible with mainstream society. So this can manifest in a couple of main ways. Um, so the, the story I told earlier about uh, people on social media complaining that we were throwing the marriage equality movement under the bus by talking about uh, promiscuity and open relationships is a more kind of uh, overt way of respectability politics manifesting. It's, it's, it's queer people explicitly telling other queer people not to behave a certain way for fear of a loss of uh, acceptance. Um, but I think that respectability politics can operate in more covert ways as well, and that these are often the more kind of pernicious manifestations of that. So to go back to the marriage equality movement in Australia, and I'm aware that this is like not actually a talk about marriage equality, but I'm talking almost exclusively about it. It's just that, you know, it's hard not to filter everything in queer politics in Australia, or at least over the past decade through a lens of marriage equality. It has really dominated conversations. Um, so a good example of covert respectability politics, and one that I, that I use quite a bit, is a 2011 political ad, a TV ad, um, from the lobbying organisation GetUp called It's Time uh, that you might have seen. It's, uh, it's an ad shot from a, a first-person camera perspective. It shows the progression of a romantic relationship between uh, the, the unseen person behind the camera and a, a man. Um, they meet, they fall in love, there's a marriage proposal, and then, surprise, at the end of the ad, you find out that the person behind the camera uh, was a man. Um, so the ad was a massive success. The advocate, the gay magazine, called it possibly the most beautiful ad for marriage equality we've seen. I was just doing finger quotes for the podcast. Um, <laughs> hopefully you could hear it in my voice. Um, so this, to me, is kind of the pinnacle of marriage equality as respectability. The ad is promoting queers as literally indistinguishable from heterosexuals. In this example, I think it's, it's also useful because we can see how marriage itself becomes a form of respectability politics by asking for acceptance within this very kind of central uh, social institution, which is marriage. We're saying we want to be just like you. So at this point, it's, it's kind of worth asking the question because without this question, you know, who cares? which is what's so bad about respectability, respectability politics? Why is it worth critiquing this? Um, and I think the answer for a lot of queers is nothing. If you're able to pass for respectable, uh, you get all the benefits of that, which are acceptance, access to all the privileges that that brings, be, be the social, economic, uh, and others. Uh, and it certainly has been an effective tool for achieving political gains. I think it, it was really instrumental in getting marriage equality across the line, for example. But uh, it's important to remember that when we centre respectability politics, anyone who's not able to pass for respectable gets left behind. And those people tend to be the most marginalised in our communities, uh, trans and gender non-conforming folk, um, poor, queers, uh, queers with disabilities are just some, some examples. Um, so, despite the fact that I've framed all of this around marriage equality, respectability politics is not new. It's been around for a long time, uh, at least as far back as the 1940s. Um, there have been arguments within, uh, um, among queer or, or people who might now be considered queer uh, within those communities uh, about whether assimilation or um, resistance and revolution were the best way forward. 
So back then, what was called the, the homophile movement uh, sought to make homosexuality more palatable to mainstream society, while uh, liberationists sought sexual revolution as a way to dismantle harmful social structures rooted in sex, sexuality, and gender. Um, respectability politics is also not just about queers. Uh, most marginalized groups in society have faced similar conflicts to this. In fact, the term has only, it's only, the term's only been around for about 20 years, and it, it comes out of um, African-American scholarship in, in the US. So it's, uh, it's something that a lot of different communities are, are thinking about and have been thinking about for a long time. I think the reason why I wanted to make respectability politics the subject of a talk about uh, the future of sex, sex and sexuality is that it feels to me like we're, for the first time, in a moment where um, discussions about respectability politics in queer communities are emerging in mainstream discourse really for the first time. They're not uh, just relegated to uh, within our communities and kept, kept separate. Um, so to give an example of how this kind of burst into the mainstream a bit quite uh, spectacularly and explicitly uh, was about a year ago, the Australian musician Brendan McLean released a video for his song House of Air. Uh, has anyone seen that video? Mm -hmm. A few nods. Um, it's very memorable. Uh, it's um, inspired, the video is inspired by a 1977 book by Hal Fisher called Gay Semiotics. Um, and it shows uh, basically the, the ways that different gay men's attire can signal interest in different sexual subcultures and sexual acts. So things like, like it focuses a bit on the hanky code. I don't know if you don't know about that, you should look it up because it's, it's fascinating, but it's basically wearing different colored hankies signal that you are interested in different kinds of sex acts. Um, so the video kind of starts out as a bit of a pastiche of the book's 70s kind of gay porn aesthetic, which I'm sure you can imagine. Um, but it sort of gradually sort of builds and escalates to the point where it's depicting actual sex acts. So, it, you know, it starts out with oral sex and then anal sex and then it just, and it, like it's actual sex, you're seeing actual sex. Um, and it just escalates and escalates to the point where the final um, shot of the video, I won't describe because it's, it's pretty intense, uh, is, is very memorable and I'm sure will stick with anyone who's, who's seen the video. Um, needless to say, it's very explicit, don't watch it at work. But, um, but, you know, watch it if you think you're up for it, because it is really great. Um, I think it's really great. Uh, so the response to the video from queer communities was kind of, on the one hand, adoration, on, on the other, outrage. So queers either loved the video for pushing boundaries or hated it because they felt like it associated all gay men with filth. Um, I, as I said, I loved it, and not just because of its boundary pushing, although I did love it for that, um, but because I think the conversations it provoked, which were explicitly about respectability politics, uh, are ones that are always worth having. Um, that's not to say that I think you have to be pushing boundaries so explicitly, um, you know, in two senses of the word, um, to be encouraging conversations about respectability politics. Uh, so I don't think they all, those conversations always need to be started with provocation. Um, has anyone watched the new Queer Eye? I feel like everyone's watching it, everyone's nodding, it's, you know, I was like, I was so skeptical about it because um, I remember hating the original one when it came out and uh, I saw a, um, uh, a promo for it early on where one of the, it was Tan, the fashion expert said, the original show, according, the original show was fighting for tolerance our fight is for acceptance. And I was like, oh, you know, 
Uh, as I'm sure probably won't surprise anyone who's been listening to this talk, I'm kind of as wary of acceptance as I am of tolerance uh, as terms, but uh, over the course of a few episodes, I went from like a really grumbling kind of skeptic scene, like going, oh, yeah, this is rubbish, to um, like literally crying in my lounge room because it was beautiful um, and, and changing people's lives. Um, and I think the turning point for the show comes, uh, for the show, and certainly for me watching it, came in episode four when the Fab Five, as they're known, uh, are assigned to make over AJ, a gay guy who is having trouble coming out to his family. Um, and much of the conversation in the episode, so he's quite a kind of masculine guy, quite sort of, he dresses quite conservatively. And much of the episode is about the, uh, the, the fears that AJ has about being associated with femininity, but fearing that by being out as a gay man, people will automatically assume that he's feminine in, in, in particular ways. And I think in the past, the response to that might've been, you don't need to be feminine. Like just because you're gay, you don't need to be feminine. But I think what was great about this um, was that the response was that the Fab Five were basically gently sort of trying to open him up to the idea that maybe it's okay to be feminine, maybe that it doesn't kind of matter who you are, whether you're a man or a woman or, or, or any, anyone else, um, it's okay to be feminine. Um, and it's not the kind of explosive challenge to respectability of uh, the House of Air video. It's still a pointed and I think ultimately really affirming response to the idea that we will only, uh, yeah, challenges the idea that we will only make progress if we, uh, you know, try to be just like everyone else. Um, so I guess to, to kind of wrap things up uh, and come back to this question of why does any of this matter, um, and particularly matter for a talk about, uh, sensibly about the future of sex and sexuality, I think it matters because queer movements in Australia and in other parts of the world are kind of on, um, on a knife's edge, I think, in a lot of ways. We've made really unprecedented strides, I think, towards our political goals. I think it's undeniable that in Australia, at least, um, you know, certainly not true in a lot of other parts of the world, unfortunately, but certainly here, things are better for queers than they have been in the past. Um, but the faster we move and the more progress we make, uh, the easier it will be to leave people behind. So I want to finish and, and leave you with kind of three main ideas to take away sort of questions and, and things to think about. So first, when I, think, um, when I think about equality and progress, I think we need to ask the questions, equality for whom and progress towards what? So that's the first thing. Those are just questions to keep in mind. Uh, second, the second point, uh, we can disagree about the best way to achieve our goals or even what those goals are, and that disagreement is okay. And finally, because I want uh, at least one of the takeaways from this talk to be a little more explicitly kind of positive and, and feel good, which I don't always do very well, um, is that what is great about queerness and I think what is exciting about queerness and that it's important to remember this is that it opens us up to new possibilities of how we can be as people, for how we can do and perform uh, and live sex, gender and sexuality. And I think that we should always as much as we can lean into those possibilities um, or at least have the option to. So rather than thinking about ways that we're the same, uh, uh, let's celebrate the ways that we're different. Thank you. Rising Minds is a volunteer organisation 
and our lectures wouldn't be possible without the help of our wonderful teams in Sydney, London, and New York. This goes out to you. This podcast was produced by Chris Frith and is a Rising Minds production. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode from the Rising Minds podcast, and we'll be back next week with an interview. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Queers by subscribing on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or on our website, queerspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Queers Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. Simon is at Simon Copland, and he's also on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. See you next time. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. Earbudsnetwork.com. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.